Hi, I'm Edwards Sree, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. This Sunday, the Catholic Church gives us one of my favorite gospel readings. It comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and it's the story of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus has done many miracles. He has multiplied loaves and fishes. He's walked on water. He's cured the sick. But this is going to be the greatest of the miracles we're going to see, and I'm going to explain why. But it's also so important for us in our Lenten journey because we're going to see there's a close connection between what happens in this story and Jesus's death. We're going to see that this story of the raising of Lazarus is the catalyst for the chief priest to conspire against Jesus and bring him to his end. And so if you want to get ready spiritually for Holy Week, if you want to get your heart and mind ready for the climax of our Lenten journey, you really need to know this story that the church gives us here in this upcoming Sunday, the story of the raising of Lazarus. There's so much here, so much. Every little detail is packed with so much meaning, and I'm excited to be able to walk through that with you in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri, And um, I just want to remind everybody again, if, particularly for those that live in the Midwest, my wife and I are getting to do this amazing marriage retreat. We're so excited to be able to do this. It's going to be in Wichita, Kansas at St. Catherine of Siena Catholic Church, and the diocese is inviting anyone from around the area. If you live in Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, Oklahoma, and you want to come join us for this retreat, it's going to be from 8.30 to 3 p.m., and all you need to do is you can, we'll put this all in the show notes here so you can get the details, but I'll, I'll just say you can call the diocese at 316-685-5240. That's 316 685 That's the Diocese of Wichita, Saturday, April 15th. I don't often get to travel with my wife and give talks, and so it's a a special time for us. We're going to be presenting on our book, The Good, the Messy, and the Beautiful, The Joys and Struggles of Real Married Life. So if you're wanting to bring your marriage to the next level, you're wanting to deepen your friendship, because as I mentioned last week, uh, that's what that's what marriage is really all about. It's not just about the I do from a long time ago and, and just being faithful to that I do. It's about taking your marriage to the next step. What is the next step in the journey God has for your marriage? Deepening your friendship, your trust, your love. And it's so important that husband and wife are growing in that unity because that it's from that love that flows over is into the life of the children. The children will be blessed the more the husband and wife are growing in unity. So for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your children, always, whatever you do, you can go on any marriage retreat. You don't have to go on ours. But do something intentional to strengthen your marriage. For those that you know live overseas, I have many people overseas listening. I doubt you're going to fly into Wichita, Kansas. And if you live you know outside of that area, I doubt you're going to fly into Wichita. Everyone's welcome, of course. But um, you can always check out our book that we wrote on this topic, on the spirituality of marriage and what God wants to do in our hearts through the struggles of married life that we all have. Those struggles are there to help us to grow in love. They're not just problems to be solved but they're places of encounter, to encounter Jesus in those struggles in our spouse and help our hearts grow in greater love. Um, So uh, you can always check out our book that we wrote, The Good, The Messy, and The Beautiful, on this topic. We'll put that in the show notes as well. All right, so if you're interested, you can call 316-685-5240. That's the Diocese of Wichita. To find out about the marriage retreat on April 15th, that's 316-685-5240. But let's return to the story 
of the raising of Lazarus. I'm so excited to get into this here today. Um, you know, if you just think about the, how the story begins, it it seems kind of odd <laughs> because Mary and Martha, those are the sisters of Lazarus. They go to Jesus. They say, Jesus, the one you love is ill. We know how much you love Lazarus. He's ill. You know, they're, they're, they're basically saying, could you please come? You know, you've healed so many people of their ailments and their sufferings, and, 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 and this is someone you really love, so please come. And so what does Jesus do? He just hangs out for a couple of days. <laughs> he doesn't go. <laughs> the Bible tells us in verse 6 that he waited two days before he went down. Why? Why did he wait? If, if he really loved Lazarus, why did he delay in coming? Well, the, the text tells us there's, there's some great reasons here. Jesus says that this illness is not unto death, but it's going to be for the glory of God and for the Christ to be revealed. That's what he says in verse 4. And, and what is this all about? Well, I think it's important to see how this is, again, the greatest of the miracles, the greatest of the miracles Jesus has done. Right? He's, he's multiplied loaves and fishes. He's calmed storms. He's given sight to the blind. He has done amazing things like made paralyzed people walk again. He's done many miracles in his public ministry, and John's gospel highlights several of these. But this is the greatest one because this person has been dead. We're going to see he arrives and he's been dead for four days. It's the fourth day now. And that's a significant point from the ancient Jewish belief. It was, it was believed that a dead person's spirit hovered near the body for three days and then left the body. So in other words, according to the ancient Jewish belief that somebody dies, you know, their, their spirit is hovering around the body for three days and then it goes away. So by the time you get to the, the fourth day, you know, you know, the person's really dead. <laughs> it reminds me of the Princess Bride. You ever see that movie where, you know, somebody's, you know, we think is dead, but it's just, he's mostly dead. <laughs> he's not really dead, but he's mostly dead. Well, when you get to the fourth day, now you're beyond mostly dead. It's like dead, dead. <laughs> so, so it's, it's demonstrating you know, unlike other times where Jesus raised someone from the dead, it was like they, they just died like that day. This is someone that it has been dead for uh, for past the three-day mark. The spirit has left him. So he, he's trying to show his power even more. Uh, look at his power over death. Uh, and it's a sign of his own resurrection coming. But what I want to highlight for us, and this is what I think is most fascinating, is how the raising of Lazarus is going to be the catalyst for Jesus's death. You see, because this is the greatest of the miracles, they've seen, the crowds have seen Jesus do so many things, but to raise someone uh, on the fourth day after they die, that's incredible. This isn't just somebody that was mostly dead being raised. <laughs> this is someone that was dead, dead, really dead. Uh, wow. And, and, and this happens in a place called Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. So you have the mountain of Jerusalem, you have the Kidron Valley, and then you've got the Mount of Olives. And then just on the other side of the Mount of Olives is where you can see Bethany. So this is really close to Jerusalem. Jesus has been journeying from Galilee to Jerusalem to get ready for Passover. And, and as he's, he's coming close to the city, he performs this greatest of miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead on the fourth day. And all the people are ecstatic when they see, wow, this is incredible. Uh, and, and they're all praising God and they're, they're believing in Jesus. But it tells us that the chief priests, they're the, they're the priests in Jerusalem. They're with the high priest. And uh, they're not happy with this. They're very angry. They're upset. 
and they're wondering, what, what, what are we going to do? So many people believe in him. And the, the chief priests and the Pharisees are, are panicking, saying, this, this man, he's performed so many miracles. He's even raised someone on the fourth day after they died. We've never seen anything like this before. What will we do? And they're worried in particular because they know that in, in the time of Passover, there was a lot of messianic expectation. There's a lot of belief that one day the Messiah would come. He would come and liberate the people from their oppressors, from their enemies, and, and he would come as king in Passover time. So every time around the season of Passover, there's a lot of messianic hopes and there tends to be more riots and uh, tensions. And the Romans, in fact, would bring in thousands of extra troops every Passover in order to make sure if there's any kind of rebellion, we're going to squash it right away. And, and the, the chief priests are worried saying, oh, if this guy comes into Jerusalem, the Romans may come in, they may destroy our city and they're going to, they're going to not like this Jesus guy. They're going to think he's, he's starting a, a movement to rebel against Rome. And there's too many followers of Jesus. This isn't going to go well. We've got to stop him somehow. What can we do? And Caiaphas, the high priest who speaks as a prophet. He's not kind of an, when you're in the office of the high priest, you can have the gift of being in the office as a prophet. He says to them in John chapter 11, verse 49 and following, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation should perish. Now, interesting. Think about that. He's saying it's better that one man should die. In other words, Let's get rid of this one man. We don't want the Romans coming in and getting nervous about Jesus and his movement here. You know, we're worried that the whole nation's going to suffer. Jerusalem's going to suffer. The Roman soldiers are going to start to destroy this place because they're going to squash a rebellion. Let's just get rid of the one man. Let's get rid of Jesus. It's better than one man be killed, be dealt with, than the whole nation should suffer. Now, John's gospel, you know, takes this and, and reports it for us. And Caiaphas meant it, you know, in a political sense. Let's just get rid of Jesus politically. Let's, let's just kill him, have him crucified, and we'll just, just, just have him dealt with. And then the, the rest of the nation won't have to suffer. But John puts it in and notes this to show the irony that Caiaphas doesn't realize what he's saying. He's speaking a deeper theological truth without even realizing it, because we know that Caiaphas as a high priest has the prophetic power, right? And what he's pointing to is that Jesus will die so that the whole nation, the whole people won't suffer. He's going to die so that all of the whole world is going to be saved through Jesus's death and resurrection. We're going to be saved from sin. So that's that's the, the beauty of, of what's happening. There's a certain irony in what Caiaphas is saying. He doesn't realize how prophetic his words really are. So we can see that the raising of Lazarus is the catalyst for Christ's death. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and as a result, he's going to be killed. The chief priests, the high priest, the Pharisees are going to conspire against him and bring him to his death because he's become just too popular. His movement has become so big because he raised Lazarus from the dead. So I think that's important. He gives Lazarus life, and he himself is going to die as a result of this. I think that's fascinating because some other details that come in here is that in John chapter 11, verse three, we learned that Lazarus was someone Jesus loved, right? So he's, he's loved by Jesus. And, and then in chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus speaks of Lazarus as his friend. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So Lazarus is described as someone that is a friend, a friend that is loved by Jesus. Why is that important? 
you know, I, I think it's because of what Jesus will say later at the Last Supper. Do you remember what Jesus says about a friend that you love? In John chapter 15, verse 11, the night before he died at the Last Supper, the farewell discourse, he talks about the greatest love there is for a friend. Do you remember what it is? He says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. That's the greatest love, to lay down your life for your friend. And Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. Lazarus is someone loved by Jesus. And what happens is by giving Lazarus life, raising Lazarus from the dead, what happens to Jesus? He's going to be killed. The chief priests, Caiaphas, the Pharisees, conspire against him and bring him to his death. He's living out that, that, that teaching of John 15, 13. No greater love is this. There's no greater love than when a man lays down his life for his friend. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. What's Jesus doing? He's giving Lazarus life back because he loves him. But he's going to pay the price for it. In just a few more days, Jesus is going to be killed for that. Jesus lays down his life for his friend. Isn't that amazing? You know, so uh, just to think about the biblical you know, story, how it's making that connection of Jesus living out his teaching about the greatest love to lay down your life for your friend. Now, I want to just turn to a, a couple other parts of the story here. Uh, we're going to hear about the great story of Martha. So Martha is really sad. Lazarus has died. And in verses 21 and 22, Martha says to Jesus, uh, or let me back up to verse 20. This is funny. It says, Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she went and met him while Mary sat in the house. <laughs> you know, the whole story of Mary and Martha. <laughs> I think this is just, you know, I think poor Martha gets a bad reputation. You know, she's associated with the active life and she's always anxious about many things. And she's rushing out to meet Jesus here. And where's, where's Mary? Well, she's just back at home, probably contemplating, you know, just sitting quiet, you know? So it's interesting that there's some play on what you find in the gospel of Luke about Mary and Martha uh, and that story. You're going to see that in here a little bit, but I do want to highlight how Martha is being portrayed as a woman of great faith. That's what St. Augustine says, that she is, she's a great model of confident prayer and humble prayer. And we can learn a lot from Martha here. Uh, it tells us in John chapter 11, verse 21 and following, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So it's fascinating. St. Augustine says, that Martha is an example of confident prayer, yet humble prayer. She's confident. She says, Lord, I know. I believe in you. I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. So she has great confidence in Jesus. But it's a humble prayer. There's a certain abandonment that she has. She doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She doesn't say, Jesus, fix my problem. Jesus, go raise my brother from the dead right now. Jesus, go do this. There's a certain detachment that she has a certain surrender that she trusts that, you know, if, if Lazarus is not supposed to be raised from the dead, that that's a part of God's plan. And there's some good in this for me and for the world. And I, I trust you there too, Lord. You know, so there's a beautiful balance here that she's confident. And she says, Lord, I know you can do anything with you. You know, nothing is impossible. She, she really believes that, but she puts it in Jesus's hands, trusting you know, whatever he wants to do he, is, is going to be what's for the best. That's the attitude we should have in prayer. Let's be like Martha. Let's have greater confidence in prayer. Do you sometimes just not really believe God? I mean, you say you do in your head, but deep down you're going, I don't think God can do this. 
I don't think God can fix this issue. Or I don't think God can heal this person. I don't think God can bring this person back to the church. You know, hey, do, do you sometimes just sometimes doubt that God can really act? He wants us to come to him with tremendous faith. He wants us to come with confidence. This is what amazes God is when we have great confidence in him. And Martha exhibits this, but she also has abandonment. And that's the other thing that amazes God is when we completely surrender to his will. So we, so we should go to the Lord confidently, Lord, please help me with this problem. Help me with this situation at work. Help me with this situation with one of my kids. Lord, help me with this thing going on in the parish or this health issue, whatever it is. Lord, I, I, I beg you, I believe you can do anything. I trust in you. I, I be, really believe you can do anything. You can move mountains. You who created the sun, the moon, the stars, just saying, let there be light. You can do anything. And yet, Lord, I abandon myself to your will. That's why it's always good when we pray to God to be like Martha here. And we can just add on words. We can express our abandonment even beyond what she did and just say, Lord, but not my will, may your will be done. That's what Jesus said in Gethsemane to the Father. We say, Lord, if it be your will, I pray you solve this problem. If it be your will, Lord, I, I pray that you heal me. If it, if, if it is your will, if it is for your plan, I pray that you help this person come back. You know, you know whatever it is, Go with confidence and then with humble abandonment. And as a result, Jesus comes and says to him, to her, your brother will rise again. And she says, I know he'll rise again on the, last, on the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. He who believes in me shall not die. Do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God. He was coming into the world. Martha exhibits the greatest confession of faith in the entire gospel of John, you know, and I know she gets a bad reputation, but wow, she comes out in the end really strong here. Such faith, you are the Lord, you are the Christ, you're the son of God. I, I believe in you, but I put this in your hands and I trust in you. I want to encourage you, whatever you may be going through right now in your life, whatever you may be struggling with, whatever difficulties you may be facing, go to Jesus with those difficulties. Don't just sit in your head and think about your problems. I do this often. Instead of talking to God about it and dialoguing with God, I often carry a monologue in my head. Okay, what about this? And what if this happens? And what if this person does this? And what if my kid does this? And what if, they, you know, I'm often just like, you know, playing this little monologue in my head. Let's go like Martha and go to talk to God bring it to God and bring it with confidence. Lord, I believe you can do anything. And so we can bring our petitions to the Lord. We can ask, Lord, help me here, Lord. But you say, if it be your will, but surrender, go with surrender, Lord. If it be your will, heal this person. If it be your will, Jesus, solve this issue over there. If it be your will. You know, so we're, we're surrendering it to the Lord. That's what happens with Martha here. Uh, and I think the same thing happens with Mary. Mary's a great model in this story. I won't spend as much time on her, but it's fascinating. Verse 29, Jesus calls and she quickly came to him. She calls her and she, she comes and kneels at his feet. That's fascinating because earlier in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, my sheep, he's the good shepherd. He says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. And Jesus calls and she quickly comes to him. In other words, he's being presented as the good shepherd. She's presented as one of the sheep that know the voice and follow. They come. So practical point I want to take away here is, do you hear God's voice in your life? Do you hear him calling you? I'm not talking about voices or visions, you know, dreams, angels appearing to you. 
Although if that happens, you know, send me a message. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but, you know, but I'm talking about the, the voice speaking within the stillness of your heart. Jesus is always calling us, not just in the big dramatic moments in our lives where we sense God's calling me to move to this new city or to, to go take this new job or to, you know, help volunteer at the parish. You know, I'm not talking about those bigger calls. I'm talking about every day. In our ordinary course of daily life, he's inviting us to pay attention to him, to be aware of his presence. He's inviting us to see him in the people around us, to love him in the people around us, our spouse, our children, our coworkers, our fellow parishioners. Do we hear the voice of God and come to him? Mary's a great model. You get the sense that, you know, she was attentive to God. You know, she's known for you know, being at Jesus's feet. In fact, that's what happens at the end of the story. She hears Jesus call, she comes, and it tells us in verse 32, she knelt at Christ's feet. That's the position of discipleship. If we want to be true disciples, we need to hear God's voice in our lives to have a little more, maybe build in a little more silence in our lives so we can actually pay attention to the movements of the spirit in our heart. Uh, But pay attention to how God may be calling us through our wife, through our children, you know, when, when our children say they need something or our spouse, you know, is, is asking for something, like to really see God's hand in that and not just put it to the side or not prioritize it and say, I'm too busy, no, but, but to really hear God's voice in the midst of the events unfolding in our lives. That's what Mary did. She heard Jesus call and she came and she knelt at his feet, the ancient Jewish position of discipleship. Let's kneel at the feet of Jesus, not just in prayer in the chapel and in prayer in our home, but in a sense, let's kneel at his feet, you know, in our hearts, hearing his voice when he calls us, particularly in the people in our lives. Well, a lot here in the story of Lazarus. I hope this has been interesting to pull together just how significant it is that he raises Lazarus from the dead and in giving Lazarus life, he himself will die. He'll pay the price because the chief priests are going to plot his death as a result of this greatest of his miracles. And maybe we can learn some lessons from both Mary and Martha of how they approach Jesus with confident faith, great confidence, but surrender. And they also have the disposition to hear the voice of God in their lives. Let's be like those early disciples, Mary and Martha. Let's follow Jesus and follow him all the way to the crosses that come up in our ordinary daily lives. That's what Lent is all about. And I pray that this little reflection on the raising of Lazarus in John 11 helps prepare you not just for the Sunday Mass reading this upcoming Sunday, but also for the great week of Holy Week. Thanks so much for listening, my friends, and God bless.